Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Start with the very last verse in that chapter. And as we read this, I, I hope, as always, that as you sang that, you were paying attention to the words. Uh, those words um, could have been taken right from this passage, especially the first verse that we are dealing with today, and that's where we're going to be spending most of our our time, and so you may want to look back at at that song later today, and uh, you will quickly recognize what I mean by this. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We'll begin with verse twenty-one. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we would ask that you would illumine our hearts, enlighten them to the truth that you revealed long ago, but you preserve for us today. And then, Lord, will you cause your Holy Spirit to apply it in our lives? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I just want to map out, uh, without taking more time, what we're going to be doing today so you don't get nervous when uh, we are two-thirds of the way through the sermon and we're still on the first verse, because that's the plan. 
we are going to, to focus uh, on verse 21 of chapter 5, and then at the very end, you're going to have to put on your seatbelts because we're going to fly through the applications that the Apostle Paul gave to the Corinthians. And remember, he didn't put in the chapter divisions. And so what he's doing is he gives this amazing uh, verse with all this theology in it, and then he gives application for the, the Corinthians, these people that, that he loved that weren't being maybe so loving toward him at that time. So let's, let's look first of all at verse 21, and if you're looking at the outline, you see what, what I've called this is the great exchange at the cross. I'm not the one that made up that term, uh, but it's such a great description of what took place. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there are uh, two aspects here. Uh, One is the, the status of Christ, what he did and what we can Uh, get to to know about him. And then the second aspect in this verse is what that means to us and for us in terms of of our salvation. So we see, first of all, that the sinless one was made sin. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Sin. So down through history, there have been groups that have had real issues with this. Just to name two of them. One would be those who have a problem considering anyone sinless. So they don't believe that about Jesus. And then the other group would be kind of on the other end of those that are are puzzled to the point of, of doubting the the second part of that, which is that one who is sinless can be made sin. Some would say, well, that's blasphemous to say that, that, that he was somehow made sin. One who is God can't be made sin. So let's address those aspects of, uh, of this which are important for us in order to understand Uh, ultimately what it means to us. We see, first of all, the sinlessness of Jesus. Uh, Over in Hebrews chapter 4, and I could have gone any number of places, but uh, Hebrews 4 verse 15 says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, every respect, has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin tempted in every way. Now, the first thing we've got to uh, absolutely understand is that uh, that that saying that that temptation in and of itself is not sin. It is sin when we are tempted and then we actually take on that temptation, fall to that 
temptation. So how was he tempted in every way, yet without sin? Uh, several ways. Uh, he was without sin before man. Remember the centurion at the foot of the cross. Surely this one is a righteous man. He was uh, tempted before Satan, Matthew chapter 4, before his ministry really began. He's in the desert, and Satan tempts him with things that he already possessed, trying to cause him to sin, tempted in every way. And he, he used Scripture to rebuff Satan. Now, the reality is anything he would have said would have been Scripture, right? <laughs> it's immediately Scripture when, when Jesus says it. But he chose to use other Scripture and, and to apply it. And so, uh, thirdly, he was without sin before God. Think of him at his, his baptism. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So 33 years, he lives in a fallen world amongst absolute sin, and he does not sin. He remains spotless. That's where it has to start. If he didn't do that, nothing else matters after that, and we are without hope. Then we see in verse 21 that Christ substituted himself for his people. He was made to be sin for us, for our sake. Now, some have taken this to, uh, to think that Jesus was like one of the Old Testament sacrifices where uh, he uh, represented a, a sin offering. Now, I'm convinced that's part of it, but it's much more than that. It goes even beyond that, and, and to narrow it to that weakens the thrust. Uh, sin um, is the guilt on account of which we're accused before the judgment of God. So, We've already been doing theology. Let's do some other theology. This term, the penal substitutionary atonement. That's one when you're at uh, your next Christian uh, cocktail party. You just throw that one out there and... They, they, you know, it will start a discussion. I, I promise you that. The, the penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means bearing the penalty. Substitutionary. And sometimes you'll see it as vicarious, but it's, it's the same thing. It means in our place. So bearing the penalty in our place, and then atonement is the payment for sin. And that's what Jesus did. Now, where is that in the Bible? And what difference does it make? Well, I often, and we have often read when we have communion here from Isaiah 53, uh, it's, it's all throughout the Bible, this uh, penal substitutionary atonement. 
but I don't know if there's any place where you can see it as clearly as the portion we read in Isaiah 53, verse 4. And I want to, I'm going to read it with emphasis so you can see the idea of him being the substitute. Uh, it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. See how it's back and forth? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the penalty, the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Real sin was upon him. But notice, in the sense of sin, Christ was passive here. What it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus didn't make himself sin. It's easy enough for, for someone to be identified uh, with sin. One easy step, and that's to actually sin. But if he had done that, then he couldn't have paid for our sin. So God had to supernaturally put it upon him for the perfect one to be sin. And then we, it says we see Jesus become sin for us, for our sake. That's where he's the, the substitute. That's what he was doing on the cross. Now that's the first aspect, what Jesus was doing what we see about him. The second aspect is what that work means to us, and that is the sinner becomes righteous. Verse 21, that we might become the righteousness of God. So having identified Christ with sin, Paul goes on in a similar vein to identify believers with righteousness. And that's the idea of the great exchange. That which was his, he gives to us. And that which was ours is given to him. Each of us is a sinner, and we have to establish that. We establish he was sinless. Uh, Romans 3.10 and 23, there's no one righteous, not even one all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet we become identified with righteousness. Now, how is that? Well, in the same way that, that uh, Christ became identified with sin. Christ took it, as it were, our person so that he might be the offender, not because of anything he did, but because of what we did. Not his offenses, but ours. So we are righteous, not because we've satisfied God's judgment by our works, but because Jesus did. So what is it we become? It says the righteousness of God, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, to appear to others as righteous isn't difficult. We can fool 
other people. But to be righteous before God who knows our hearts, that's a whole different thing. I'm going to give you one more theological word, and that is justification, which we've talked about many times. What happens when we are justified? Well, that necessitates the active and passive obedience of Christ, the passive obedience in this sense. He died on the cross to pay for our sins and bring us forgiveness. But it's got to be more than that. You say, well, what do we need beyond forgiveness? Well, if what he did only gave us forgiveness, then we would stand, as it were, before God as kind of a zero. No sin, but nothing to offer. And that's where his active obedience comes in, and that is that he lived the perfect life, perfectly fulfilled every aspect of the law, and then he gave that to us. So instead of standing before God as a zero, we're like a a plus because we stand before him as righteous. When that takes place, and this is a shocker, in God's eyes, you're as good as Jesus. That should just drive us to praise. I mean, what, what, what other response could there be to that? Now, we don't stay as good as Jesus for very long, do we? We sin. We need forgiveness. But what he did on the cross was enough to cover our whole life and take us into eternity. For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. Our sin is put on Jesus. His righteousness is put on us. To believe that is to trust in Christ alone for our eternal life. That's the gospel right there, right in this verse. Now, where's he go from there? What are the results of believing the message of that great exchange? Well, the next verses, he, he gives uh, some applications. Um, if you remember last week, we, we said that, uh, or Paul said that we are ambassadors. And the question is not whether or not, as a believer, you're an ambassador. The only question is, are you going to be a good ambassador or or a bad ambassador? And so he is about to describe what I I believe is a good ambassador uh, for Christ. He's expanding on the characteristics, and he gives five areas. The first one, verse 3. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So the first thing is avoiding placing obstacles 
that's important if you're going to be an ambassador. Unbelievers are always looking for excuses of why they don't believe what Jesus said. And as often as not, it has something to do with something they saw a Christian say or something a Christian did to them or something the church has done. And they will use that as an obstacle. And Paul says, if you have obstacles, it's not because of me or us. That's what an ambassador must seek to do. Secondly, a good ambassador uh, displays perseverance. Look at verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. And then he he gives these triplets. uh, in, In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, Uh, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. So he uses these word groupings to describe uh, what they have been through in in the name of Christ. And all of those things that he went through, it was voluntary. He did it because he's an ambassador. Now, how could he do that? Well, remember what he said earlier back in chapter 4, verse 17? He said, for this light momentary affliction, what he was going through, he called it a light momentary affliction, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Remember, he was saying, everything I'm going through, it's light, it's momentary, it's temporary, and it doesn't even compare to that which I'm looking forward to. And so he had this endurance in knowing this isn't it. This isn't ultimately where I'm going to be or how I'm going to be treated because there's something way better. And then thirdly, an ambassador reflects the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 6, you see a, a number of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. He gets to the, the moral affirmations that basically were proof that the Holy Spirit was working in them. It wasn't just them. Now today, we elected elders and deacons. And I I don't think any of you voted this way. But, you know, sometimes people will will think in these terms. They'll say, you know, so-and-so's got a successful business. I think he'd make a good officer. Or uh, he's he's handy. He's good with his hands. Or, you know, he'd, he'd be a good officer. Well, Okay, those, those aren't bad things. But if you look at the qualifications for officers in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, most of them have to do with moral character. That's how essential it is. We worry less about these, these other skills, but it's the moral character. That is the key. And that's what God looks at as well 
But also, Paul understood that's what people in our world are looking at it. And that is where we stand in terms of our character. Fourth, an ambassador is dependent on God and not one's power, not his own power. He says in verse 7, by truthful speech and power and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. He had just said back in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So he speaks in, in terms of a battle, but he says what matters is that if we are to win this battle, it's the power of God that will be the victor. It's the weapon of righteousness. It's not our own abilities. And that's essential for an ambassador to know as well. And then fifth, an ambassador lives a life, what I've called defying the world. Defying the world. He, he takes nine almost opposite uh, statements uh, and, and the first one is to show uh, what his critics are saying about him. And then the second one is what's true before God. So he's saying, yeah, this is, this is what they're saying or, or maybe what some think, but here's the truth. So he says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters, yet are true. You see, imposters is what they're saying. He says, but before God, we're true. As unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. And he says, you can say those things, but here's the truth. And then, he makes a personal appeal. He says this in verse 11. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart's wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. So here's what he's getting at here. He's expressing his love to them. He's saying, look, we've been transparent with you. We've, we've laid it all out here in trust and out of love for you, and yet you're holding back. He's saying this is, at this point, this is a one-way relationship. And here he's speaking as a pastor to people where he had planted a church. He said, open your hearts back to us. Real relationship, that's necessary. So, I want us to conclude the way Paul began this section. Back in verse 2, Paul quotes Isaiah 49. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, when 
that statement was made in, in Isaiah. It was made concerning the release of God's people of Israel from their captivity in Babylon. And what that was, it was a glorious thing. It was a great thing for his people. But even this, he shows, that was foreshadowing another release, another freedom that is to come, that's going to be an ultimate freedom. So he quotes that, that uh, now is the day of salvation, now is the favorable time. He quotes it right after he said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you believe that? It's before you today. And because it is before you today, today is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, there's some heavy stuff that we have said. There's lots of theology, and, and one can, can sometimes get lost in that or in the details of it. Uh, may that not be the case. Lord, even now, will you enable us to receive the truth of the gospel, to grasp that, that great exchange that Jesus on the cross died the death that we deserve to die. And he had lived the life that, that we should have lived. But he gave that to us before his father. Will you cause that to drive us to praise you, not only in this last song and in our time of worship, but even as we leave here and with our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.